real life. Superpowers. As an investor, it's not my role to make decisions for the founders or the company. And I don't think that it's my role to uh, do the execution for them. But it is my role to be the trusted 24-7 globally partner. Whatever is happening, wherever it is, whenever it is, I have to be there for them and to do whatever I can by advising, by sharing our experience, by reaching out to other people, by opening any relevant door so that it's helpful in any way that's needed. Welcome to the Real Life Superpowers podcast. I'm Noah Eshed, co-hosting here with my partner in crime, Renan Manipaz. Today we have a special guest, Yair Sneer, who is the managing partner of Dell Technologies Capital. With over a decade of experience in building companies, Yair has a keen eye for investing in innovative startups. His firm has backed over 145 startups, including some of the most successful companies in the tech industry, such as DocuSign, JFrog, Netscope, Redis, and Zscaler. Prior to his role at Dell Technologies Capital, Yair held corporate leadership roles at ECI Telecom and Microsoft, where he gained valuable experience in managing teams and developing successful strategies. He's also founded and worked in various biotech companies, showcasing his versatility as a business leader. We're happy to have him here today. So without further ado, let's get started. Real Life Superpowers Superpowers. Yeah, welcome to Real Life Superpowers. Thank you very much. Nice being here. You have quite an unusual journey in the sense that you were both uh, an entrepreneur and founder of ventures and also held corporate roles and you currently do. And that makes me curious what made you, at least for now, choose the more corporate path? So it's an interesting question. Uh, I'll begin with, with the end and then I'll go back to the beginning. Uh, I'm not part of any corporate today. <laughs> We're a single LPVC. Uh, so, uh, so that's one point. But I think I can say generally that kind of looking at my career backwards, it's probably a list of, of good long opportunities that kind of happened, fortunately for me, in the right place and timing, you know. Uh, many of the roles that I've taken along the years were roles that I was not even familiar with, that I had no idea what I'm getting myself into. Uh, and I was just lucky enough throughout kind of most of my career. Uh, and with that in mind, you know, it's kind of every time that I thought that I've reached the low peak, I've realized uh, during my next role that there's a lower peak and uh, you know it went from one point to another but kind of I began with a technology record so I founded the neuro uh, neuro research neurogenomic research lab uh, just you know uh, graduating my studies and then again I got to that in completely incidentally I mean it was not planned and, and no one thought that nothing's gonna that anything's gonna happen there. Uh, and surprisingly, it was beginning of the 2000s, kind of, we've realized, hey, you know what? There are some interesting, uh, it was genetic related, it was related to genetics and then uh, autoimmune disease. And we were like, you know, surprisingly, there is something going going on here. I mean, there is something here. 
and it evolved for me taking full responsibility and leading and founding it. So that, that was one. And then kind of, you know, I was happy and unhappy because most of my friends who graduated with me, computer science, stuff like that, they had nice tech roles with all the nice compensation that comes along. Uh, and I wanted some of it as well. So I became, I went to, I joined a startup as an algorithm leader. Uh, and with that in mind, I realized that it's really cool and I like what I do and I was getting far better compensated, but but realistically kind of, I was looking for something something broader, and that kind of uh, made me go and do my MBA studies, during which I was headhunted, in retrospective, I know, by one of my lectures, by the help of one of my lectures there, uh, lecturers there, that, that uh, he uh, passed my CV to one of the uh, strategy consulting firms, which was a space that I was had no idea about of its existence or anything. So kind of, and that's what eventually made me make the shift from a tech role to, to a business. How do you take a role that you do, have no idea like what you're getting into? Like, let, you know, let, you, a lot of students or whatever the capacity, they go take the roles. And there's a lot of people that are taking roles. And actually, you know, you don't know what it is till you start. You know, every student knows that they start a job is different from the thesis. So you said that you created a lot of the opportunities and sometimes you got into things, okay? How do you have the courage to get into things and like, you know? At this point, I can share, I can honestly admit that for every role that I had along my career, whatever I thought I'm getting myself into was effectively completely different than what it was really about, okay? Uh, I think that there's as much that you can understand by having people explaining you and sharing their thoughts and, and kind of description. At the end of the day, everyone kind of experiences differently the role and kind of also to the extent crafts it slightly differently. So I was not familiar with that practice. And then, you know, once I've been approached, I've kind of started chopping around and I sort of, I thought that I know what I was getting myself into, but obviously I really knew what I will, where I'm at and what I'm supposed to do, only what I was kind of hands-on within the role. Where did you get the courage to jump into roles while knowing that you don't know the role, what, what you're expected to do? No, I knew, I, I thought that I knew what was the role. In every case, I thought that I, that I knew what I was getting myself into, but realistically it was effectively different. But you still knew that you had to learn how to actually do the no, job. It, it, it was a very, significant shift because effectively kind of mindset wise i was like i'm gonna leave or kind of the risk that i'm taking here i'm no longer going to do tech which is kind of i studied hard this was my again early stages of my career but that was all of my career around tech and stuff and i'm going to leave that aside because i don't see myself i'm finding finding it hard to see myself uh, uh continuing with it for the rest of my my career and that was a bet. I took a bet, but you know, reality is stronger than anything. And and, and indeed, for few, for about almost three years, I've had no touch or interaction with tech. But then I was headhunted, headhunted by by ECI back at the time, which was an Israeli big tech firm for a strategy uh, kind of uh, corporate strategy role. So that was kind of a closure of 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 that tale. Kind of, I had a business role, but that required also tech expertise and depth. Uh, and with that in mind, in that role, I realized that I'm, I mean, 
as much as I enjoy the business aspect of things, it has to be around tech because tech is kind of the domain or, or uh, the area where I'm mostly interested at and I'm relatively doing okay with uh, comparison to others. When you hop onto this opportunity, what would you say was the first thing you do to like do demystification of the opportunity? Meaning like you get in, uh, you know, it's, it's already companies, most of the opportunities were companies already, and you took like this position, okay? What was like the first thing you did to also understand the role or was there a common denominator stat strategy that you built, you know, to hack it? I'll say two things. First of all, when looking at my next role, A, I wanted to make sure that I'm not, no longer gonna deal with things that I didn't like with my previous role, okay? So that was somehow the easier part of it, okay? Additionally to that, uh, what I did was other than talking to the hiring manager and other employees, I think one of the most important things was talking to ex-team team members, i.e. folks who have been working there and were no longer there, to get kind of their thoughts on not, not, not about the job title and kind of what it, what it means or job description theoretically, but realistically, kind of how, how does the day-by-day day day looks like and all that stuff. Uh, Again, it's not 100%, well, 100% bulletproof, but kind of that gives you an idea of what were the good things, what were the challenges, and, and the politics, politics, the dynamics, the challenges, why that individual is no longer there, uh, what were the good things, what should I be acknowledging, taking into account, what are the trade-offs, kind of. Am I right in assuming that fear of failure wasn't very dominant, that you, you had that self-belief that you'll be okay? Uh, a, yes, B, fear of failure is part of the game, okay? But some get paralyzed by it, so how did you overcome it? Fair enough, but, but you put things into proportions. First of all, it has to do with your age. The younger you are, the less you're jeopardizing and, and have to lose. I don't think that the risk is huge because along the time you, I mean, part of the challenge is not only about the new role and new place that you're getting yourself into. It's also kind of who would you be and how would you act and behave in that place? Okay. Kind of, so along the process, we're also learning, we're, we're also getting to know ourselves. Okay. We're evolving. We behave and, and respond and act differently in one place uh, versus the other place. And it has also has to do with the time. At the age of 20 plus, I was acting and, and doing things differently versus how I've done it. On, I was doing it at the age of 30 and probably differently from doing it uh, at the age of 40. Uh, but kind of, I've never seen it as a huge risk. Uh, I trusted my diligence, knowing that the fact that even if it's going to be, if I'm not going to achieve or find what I'm expecting to, I'm going to gain the, the, the constant, the two things that I had in my A, I'm going to gain, for sure, I'm, I believe that I'm going to be gaining skill set that's going to be serving me going forward. And secondly, I'd say for every role that I took along the years, the, what I had in mind kind of that it's serving my long-term North Star at any point, which obviously has changed along, along uh, the time. That's actually, that, that's what, that actually is exactly the plan. So if I say in hindsight, today managing also the investments and the as a, also like a, um, a capital VC, you're actually the range and the exp experience you had of companies and the dynamics and the versatility uh, probably helps you do due diligence and, you know, 
better statistics and you know the know-how from your previous experience. Yeah, you know, I mean, every every skill that you're gaining, every experience is is relevant. You need to, at the same time, it's good to gain experience and track record, but at the same time, you also need to be careful with that, not to kind of think about everything in patterns of things that you've seen before. So you need to leave some room for the unknown. The way to think about it kind of career-wise is like almost similar to riding bicycle. I mean, you've got to look forward. If you're going to look downwards at the, at the wheel, you're most likely to fall, okay? And and in bicycle, most most of the thing is about keeping uh, keeping your maintaining your balance and looking straight ahead forward. Forward. So kind of same thing, pretty much. You know, it's funny because you know talking about investment in my previous role, I was driving a corp dev, uh, i.e. the M&A for Microsoft for uh, Europe and Israel. And I have to say, and prior to that, when I was with ECI, I was I was a chief uh, strategy officer, so I had to drive the company strategy. Throughout my career, I can admittedly say, and I'm not proud of it, and I'm not saying that that's the way it should be. Uh, ideally, it would have not been that case. Every achievement that I've had, every every success that I, that I had, began with a no. There have always been individual or individuals that were against it, that were negative about it, it always began with a no. It doesn't mean that every no translated later on to success. Absolutely no. But every success, every achievement began with a no. At DCI, whenever we had a plan to kind of, you know, address a new strategic direction, have the manage, align the management accordingly, it began with no. There's no chance that it's going to happen. And then you slowly, slowly within the corporate politics, need to build your coalition and kind of build it from top, bottom up, top down, kind of both directions. And eventually some of it succeeded. And then uh, obviously everyone made sure to let me know that I have no chance in succeeding. So, so that was that. At Microsoft, I was doing M&A when I joined the company, you know, uh, there was unanimous agreement across the board. We talk about uh, 2013, uh, where uh, Steve Ballmer was the company CEO. M&A were, for Microsoft were not that popular back at the times. And everyone made sure uh, during my onboarding uh, uh, process to let me know that, hey, they really like me to succeed, but I don't have any chance with it. And, you know, fortunately enough, and again, it's a matter of luck. Is it motivation for you? Do you enjoy the no, the challenge itself? No. I don't enjoy it. It doesn't motivate me. But again, I don't, I'm not taking, I'm taking it in proportions. There are various no's, okay? And you need to, you know, peel this onion and, and understand if and when it makes sense or if and when I think that I still believe in my approach and, and we should push forward. Uh, so, and again, you need luck. I needed luck, to be honest. You know, in Microsoft, there was a new, uh, Satya Nadella came in as a new CEO and everything changed. And then the next thing that people told me, hey, there's great chance for doing M&A, but guess what? Not likely to happen in Israel or Europe. <laughs> so the next challenge was like finding the right companies, finding the right, uh, specifically the right company and the right business owner to be kind of uh, into it, to, to, to collaborate and kind of uh, pursue this opportunity. And again, it continues with my current role as an investor, you know, where we kind of approve our IC investment committee has to do, it's, a pop, it's about partnership. So we approve an investment uh, we, in, a, in a democratic majority, i.e. Uh, you need to have the majority of the partners voting in favor of, of the deal. 
Can you can you give me an example? Like, let's say, what do you mean? How do you vote for it? What's like the process? Like, so the process is very simple, pretty much standard to most VCs. You have two phases. In the first phase, you introduce the company, who they are, what they do, why it's potentially interesting, and what's kind of the big frame where they are business-wise, if there are any business uh, going what's the deal is likely to look like in a high level, okay? How much they want to raise, ballpark, and what's going to be the deal ballpark. And then you get many questions, and, and this is the, the introductionary phase stage, okay? And then it, unless there's something radical or people are aggressively against it, whatever, they would vote uh, in favor of it, okay? And then the, the, the deeper work begins, the deeper dive begins. You need to ask all the hard questions. You need to do proper diligence, you know, business, technology, customers, uh, team, talent, financials, everything, everything that you can think of. And we're an early stage investor. So sometimes, I mean, these are great questions, but you're not necessarily going to find an answer for that because it is what it is. And, uh, you know, you dig it through. Uh, and you build it from scratch. And along the process, it's not only about finding good answers to all of the questions. I did good. Maybe if these are bad, bad answers, as it's a good reason why this deal should not be pursued further. But but kind of along the diligence process, you also need to build kind of an internal lobby or, or internal coalition among the partnership. So you make sure that you're not the only one hearing the answers and joining the, in, joining the diligence calls and interviews and stuff like that. You onboard, you're try, I'm trying to kind of attract and onboard more and more partners to be part of it, okay? So that I'm not only the only one vouching for it, yet there's going to be when we're going to do the second meeting, which is about, you know, with all the details, answering all the questions, specifically what are the deal terms, you know, like to, all the bits and bytes. Uh, the, 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 the preference or the idea is to get to that point where you have more than one voice vouching for it. So it's kind of its process. By the way, it's all happening really quickly. You have like one, two, max three weeks for the whole process, including the first phase, uh, because it's a competitive space, which is good. So, you know, I mean, almost every deal that I've, uh, investment that I've done, and for some of them, it yet to be, it's yet to be seen if it's going to be successful or not. But almost every deal that I've managed to drive began with no, nah. It's not likely to be interested. Nah, we're not likely to do that. No, M many no's. Uh, again, some of them were good. Some of them were kind of, okay, still let's test it and let's take a deeper dive and see if it's indeed the case or not. Uh, so it, it, it doesn't mean that I'm ignoring the feedback. Don't get me wrong. The feedback is highly significant and that's, and that's the essence of partnership. But again, unfortunately, that's my experience. I'm not saying that this is the ideal way. In my experience, the good things never come easily. Uh, and it's okay. I'm fine with, with acknowledging it. I'm, fi I'm fine with working hard. Uh, I got used to it. You know, Chris Voss that wrote Never Split the Difference, he, he writes in the book that you should strive for a no because every no actually gets you closer to a yes. Well, I would be happy with a lower portion of no's. I, I, for, fortunately for me, I don't need to strive for it. It comes by itself. But, but yeah, there is some sense to that, I guess. How many pitches do you hear like in an average month? Uh, probably low tens. And what are like the, the three filters, three rules that don't pass you? Like you filter it out. Like for sure, I'm not. It, uh, this is not an opportunity. Our role is to, we're an early stage investor, okay? So we're leading early stage rounds, seed A, potentially B, but most seed and A these days, in the past few years and these days. 
it begins with the team, okay? In those stages. What do you check like in the team? So what is like a deal breaker on the team? I think that the question should be, what's the ideal team? And then we can derive what's, what can, can be a deal breaker. But ideally we're looking for a solid team of founders who have done relevant things in their life that are coming from the relevant space, who are trying to solve real big problem in a novel way, bringing unique or exceptional expertise to that. And at the same time, it doesn't mean that they need to know it all, but they need to acknowledge the fact that they don't know it all, i.e. Uh, they need to acknowledge what obviously their strength, but also their weaknesses so that as the company evolves, onboarding the right professionals and, and, and experts can compensate for that. So with that in mind, you know, uh, we're looking for a strong team that's open to work in partnership because at the end of the day, being an early stage investor, leading the round, sitting on the company's board, working closely with the team, it's kind of a long-term marriage, okay? We're going to live together for many years. It's not going to be easy. There's going to be some better parts. There's going to be some more challenging parts. That's that's life. It's real life. It's not something in the laboratory. And with that in mind, kind of, you want to make sure that, that beyond the fact that that's a strong team, uh, it's a team that's uh, uh, capable and up for working together. As an investor, it's not my role to make decisions for the founders or the company. And I don't think that it's my role to uh, do the execution for them. But it is my role to be the trusted 24-7 globally partner. Where, whatever is happening, wherever it is, whenever it is, I have to be there for them and to do whatever I can by advising, by sharing our experience, by reaching out to other people, by opening any relevant door so that it's helpful in any way that's needed. Uh, and that's kind of what we're looking at at the end of the day. Maybe even one of your investments, what's like the best team you've seen? The ideal team would typically be, be two to three founders. Ideally, at least two of them are female entrepreneurs uh, with diversified background, yet solid uh, 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 connection between them. And by the way, the strength of, of, of the relations of the founders is critical, okay? You want to have a founding team that's experienced the goods and bads so that they're resilient enough to go through the challenges that comes along the, part, the, the, the entrepreneurship journey. But they're very early stage. So sometimes, unless this is like not their first rodeo together, that's sometimes something that you don't really know yet. True. But they can have joint background. They can come from the same, uh, you know, uh, areas, whether it's the military, the university, workplaces. I mean, we're not raised. We're, we're, typically, they're not at the age of 17. Okay. Uh, but that time, and you're right, they haven't been working and, and being together for 20 years, but, but, there need to be some bondage. Otherwise, uh, the, again, not always, but there's a risk for cracks along, uh, along the way. Do you actively ask them about challenges that they overcame together and sort of... We're, we're, we're talking about everything. We're learning, we're getting to know, we're trying to get to know each other mutually very well. It's not only about us choosing them and wanting to invest in them. It's also about them choosing us and, and kind of want, of having them want to become part of our family, okay? To that extent, I always urge founders, even when we choose to invest, to reach out and talk to some of our other founders in, in the present or past, in Israel or in the US. I'm not making, I'm not doing an introduction because I don't want it to come from me. So I'm providing them with a the contact detail so that they can reach out directly and, and get an honest feedback. 
it's a mutual mutual agreement. I mean, we're gonna live. We're gonna be living together. Did it ever happen that uh, you know you gave them uh, the contact information of a founder uh, that you've invested in, and you sort of sense that uh, the, the the other the people that you gave the number to decided not to proceed with you after such call? No, it has never happened. But my advice is, if you guys are gonna hear bad things, please do do me and mainly to, for yourself a favor, just run away. Don't stay for a minute. I mean, don't do that to you to yourself. It's gonna be hard whatsoever. You don't need any additional challenges. Right. And you know, you you're clear that d- during the day to day, you're there for the founders as much as they need, and you you're not trying to do things for them. But yeah. what does it look like in reality? Like, how much are you involved in the day to day? How much do they reach out? It's a great question, but obviously it varies with uh, given the company stage, the nature of the founders, the nature of the space, you know, the, the, the circumstances, but it can be, it can range from a daily call or sometimes several, th- several times a day if there's something really happening and going. And it can be once a week, once a month. It's critical for me. I mean, while I want to be available as much as needed, the founders should choose what's the right cadence for them. It's not my role to manage them, and it's not my role to determine what's going to be the cadence and frequency of us talking. Uh, and it's about building the relations. Ideally, we want to get to a point where they feel comfortable enough to reach out with whatever they need. If that's not the case, then I might be doing something that I'm probably doing something wrong. We're excited to be collaborating with the Israeli website CTEC, owned by Kalkalist, Israel's leading business newspaper. CTEC is the gateway of the Israeli high-tech to the tech world and vice versa. If you're not already a regular reader, we strongly recommend that you check out kalkalistech.com, C-A-L-C-A-L-I-S-T-E-C-H.com to stay up to date on all high-impact stories from the Israeli tech scene. And in the turmoil now and the inflation and everything, right? So, well, well you know, what do you think are going to be like the hotspots 2023, 2024 in the tech? In terms of domains? In, in, in terms of industries that are worthwhile... Uh, worthwhile to look at I think that there are a few areas okay it can be a it can be referred to either through the technology or the, the the verticals but effectively I think that the whole space what you know it began as a machine learning then evolved to artificial intelligence then evolved to deep learning and now called generative AI I think that this space has been hot and will be hot in the coming years to the extent that it Can potentially be revolutionary in the way that people consume services people do their day job and stuff like that so this is again very broad but this is areas where I think that if you're going to look vertical by vertical whether it's medicine or whether it's finance or whether it's legal construction and I can go on and on uh, that's a big deal okay we're effectively experiencing a transition to Kind of the next industrial revolution, thanks to the great technology which applies both for the software and the hardware that's available today and that's going to be available in the coming years. I'm also a great believer that at some point in the near future or midterm future, there's going to be significant distinction between companies who are business driven who are data driven versus those who are not data driven. And to that extent, I think that the whole space referred to as, The modern data stack is a big deal. More and more company would need to deal not only with storing the, and collecting and storing the data, but also 
having the ability to consume it, to make sure that it's at a high, at a high quality and base their business uh, on, on this data and data insights. I would even go further. I believe that in, at some point, data would become like a tangible asset, i.e. companies would also be valued uh, based on the amount of data that they have, the quality of it, and the ability to act or monetize upon it. Uh, and in order to enable that, you need a really strong and deep technology stack to you know, enable and, and support it. You also need to have the right professionals, but that's a separate story. How much do you think that this uh, investment across the board almost in AI is potentially feeding a monster that's going to pose a serious threat on, I'll go as, as far as to say, humanity? I think that the way to think about it is like any other technology. It's going to have a lot of enhancements. Uh, it, would, it should enable, uh, on one hand, existing roles might become redundant for professionals, but at the same time, there's going to be new roles and new things that people would be able to do as some of the things are being addressed and done by, by, uh, by these new technologies. It's almost like similar to the concern where back in the 70s, the computer, the PCs and computers came in, right? We thought, hey, the computer is going to do it all. Why would you need employees? Guess what? We continued needing employees, but doing different things. But, but like very serious people such as Yuval Noah Harari, uh, Max Tegwell, uh, even Elon Musk to an extent, are saying that if this isn't slowed down uh, in order to make sure that we're able to keep this under control, this could evolve into a new species that could potentially be very dangerous. What's your take on that? So yes, I think now we're talking uh, we're not talking about the what, we're talking about the how, okay? Uh, I think that there's an agreement that this technology is needed and, and is going to be very useful and helpful in the future. There's also technology is, is, you know, is power. And now there's a big question how you use that power. And, and some of these uh, uh, professionals are right that there's a thing called adoption curve. We need to make sure that things don't happen too rapidly, i.e. that companies and society and, and economies have the right balance of adopting this technology, consuming it and evolving through the next stage, rather than not preparing themselves and getting ready with all the required infrastructure to enable it and make the best or positive use of it. Okay. It's, it's about power, you know? It's like, you don't want to be in a position like a kid playing with a pomegranate, okay? I mean, you want to have the right professionals dealing with the right technologies for doing good things and helping humanity. And if you don't have the right infrastructure and setup for that, then you're, we're putting ourselves as a society at a potential risk. Right, because it could be a race to the bottom. Like there's this term that I've heard called Moloch, where basically exactly. the, the companies are forced by more uh, capitalistic forces to develop uh, at a certain speed because they know they can't slow down because they'll then lose money. And then they know they're doing something that could be bad, but they can't afford to slow down. And the results are something that uh, we should probably all be concerned about, but I hope that uh, we shouldn't. Again, it's a viable risk. I'm not underestimating it, but the way that I'm choosing to think about it is, is it's like any other technology. You need to handle it with care and you need to make sure that you have the right setup and infrastructure to, to properly enable it. Uh, yeah. And you know, you're working so closely with entrepreneurs all the time and you have your own entrepreneurial background. 
do you ever feel that itch and and think that maybe you want to do something of your own or is the ability to navigate and truly influence startups sort of answering that need the short answer is yes but it's a it's a deeper it's a deeper question and answer because obviously it's kind of a drive that keeps you keeps keeps going i mean it cannot let go of you and at least in my case but then you know working with startups i mean we've so much stuff on our plates these days that no one has the bandwidth of thinking about some anything else so kind of in today's reality company companies effectively uh, are dealing with an evolving reality at such a high pace that we're all being swamped by that and if about two years ago pretty much everything worked and you didn't work you didn't need to have too much effort for things to perceive as successful today is the completely opposite case today you need to work so hard and and so accurately to have proper market a product market feed and then to have it wrapped and, and supported by the proper uh, uh, go-to-market strategy I mean the room for for mistakes today is very very tight because you know different temperatures different macroeconomic reality different geopolitical situation globally money is not at the availability that it used to be before so kind of uh, the buffer is getting thinner and thinner these days for making mistakes at the same time we encourage we're human beings we encourage founders and teams to you know try and, and do mistakes but The thumb rule is kind of fail fast ie you should, you should try and if we're going to fail that's completely okay but we need to make sure that we get to the right crystallized you know uh, uh, result as, as needed and the upside for that is that and it's almost changing the mindset kind of companies early st- what used to be early stage and our steeler stage companies are undergoing a transition a mindset transition and kind of the thing to be bear to, to bear in mind is that you If we've achieved that, i.e if there is good product market fit and the customers consume it today, it's most likely also to be resilient within two to three days uh, three, two to three years from now once we're out of uh, the current uh, uh, inflection point. I have to ask something it's a personal note like you know what I'm gonna start with Jfrog. I love those guys. I missed out on that opportunity. What's so special about them because I feel that like also as you know Israeli entrepreneurs, They're, they're a special bunch. What, what stands out for you in that investment? You know, when we made the investment, we let the beer on with JFrog, okay, which is pretty early. And we, when we did it, I mean, we thought that it's interesting and, and it can evolve to become something significant, addressing real need. To be fully transparent, no one has imagined it to, to grow and, 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 and become a huge thing like it is today, okay? Uh, But again, it's a good example where you're targeting the right team, addressing real pain, which is really hard to resolve, by the way. Still, so many years later, it's still a very, very big problem that very few know how to address and solve it. Uh, and kind of with that in mind, I mean, again, it's not a guarantee, but it increases the likelihood of it to succeed, coupled with a very, very, very solid uh, management founding team, very solid. Very open for advice, very transparent in information. Like they, they, they built like a kind of community around, uh, around the investments. They've built a huge community around them and they're very, very much data-driven, constantly listening to customers, not assuming that they know what customers think or what customers know, kind of triggering, triggering again and again the customers, making sure that they're getting to the fine line of 
what's really needed, how it's needed. I mean, like not leaving any rock, uh, you know, as is. And I guess for them it worked. It doesn't mean that it's going to work for anyone, but it's a, it's a combination, luck, and, and, you know, it's a combination of ingredients and luck, I guess. And we were fortunate to be there early on, but the credit goes to the founding team and to the, the whole uh, company employees. What advice would you give a starting entrepreneur? First of all, having the right co-founders is critical. And the way to think about it, these are people that you're going to live with and work with for the coming years. Your destinies are tied. Uh, you need to make sure that these are the right founders. I mean, it's not something random. But how can they do that? The same way that they need to choose, you know, a spouse. I mean, it's like, it's it's a similar question. You need to trust yourself at the end of the day, but there need to be good ground for, good grounds for that. And with that in mind, the next thing would be, I mean, beyond obviously doing, trying to solve and address the right need, which is no-brainer. It's no-brainer in terms of what we're trying to achieve. It doesn't mean that they're going to find it. Is is being very picky about future partners, i.e. investors, advisors. I mean, especially in Israel, there's so many people who want and like to be heard. Uh, so many people would be more than happy to share their advice. At some point, it can become confusing. You need to limit your bandwidth and stay focused, crystal focused. That's kind of the basis. I mean, the, the fundamentals, I think, for, for, for doing the right thing in the right fashion. What about the pitch deck? Is that something that uh, you think is material? That uh, Do you have any winning tips there? Yeah. It's about the ability. You can never be too good with that, i.e. there's always room for improvement. You need to be able to convey the message in a short, clear way, uh, leaving room also for the unknowns, but acknowledging it referring to other uh, uh, companies in the market uh, and addressing all the angles and, and uh, you know, aspects. But it has to be very short and, and clear. I mean, sometimes this is not the case and it's a great team it's doing something great, but you need to peel the onion more and more to get to the bottom of it and then understand. So as part of it, it's good to, to practice and try with other people and, and people that have not heard it before so that they can give you uh, you know, good feedback, honest feedback. Yeah. Okay. And, and on the conflict of interest, meaning on the VC side, it's very exit oriented, like ROI oriented. And, you know, as Israel, like now we'll talk specifically about this culture, it would be great to have more like checkpoints, you know, and, um, you know, less exit strategies per se. Um, uh, like, how do you how do you manage that? Because in one you wanted them to succeed, and second, the you know the investors want ROI after a five year, seven year, or whatever kind of turnover they're looking for. Uh, I think the checkpoint has done one of the most impressive exits in Israel. It's a publicly traded company, so it is an exit. It's a liquidation event where investors, founders, and employees uh, got money. Okay, so they did have an exit. Uh, and I think that that resembles almost for any success story. You have various types of exit. It can be publicly, it can become publicly traded, i.e., go through an IPO, or it can get acquired by by another company. But uh, one way or another, these are all exits. Okay, it's hard to measure. It's, I mean, 
that that that's that's what happening with most successful companies okay it doesn't have to be but it's usually the case same goes for mobileye same goes for Wix and many other monday.com and many other companies uh so what's my advice i mean the conflict of interest you know i can talk on behalf of ourselves we're not in a rush as long as the company is doing well and growing we're not in a rush we'd rather wait support the company and and get even a, a bigger larger return uh, so I don't think that we're different in that point from the founders or the employees. But I would say in some cases you have good companies where there's an exit opportunity and the founders want to sell. And even if we think that that company can get higher and become bigger, it's their play. It's their show. They get to, to have all the glory that it's their gig and they've built it. So we will be supportive of whatever the founders and the company wants. Uh, they're the one kind of sacrificing their lives and everything for the sake of, of the company's success. So for us, it's no brainer. I mean, uh, the, the founding team, the management would dictate uh, uh, how it's gonna, how it's gonna happen and what's gonna happen. We can try improve the terms or, or get better deal, but, but if the founders are ready to sell and they feel that that's it, uh, we wanna sell the company and get our lives back, ideally, uh, we would be supportive. Whether we think that this is the right thing or or not, it doesn't matter. We will opine, but we will be supportive. Were there ever an instance where you saw a need to replace founders? To replace founders? Or it's hard to replace founders. You mean replace the management? Step down as CEO. Yeah, so the third wheel didn't work out. So in the US, we had companies that are today publicly traded, big, very big companies, that there was a management transition there. Because in some, there were the case there was the founding team and management that, were, that did a phenomenal job at taking the company for the first tens of millions of dollars was not the right management to take the company to hundreds of millions of dollars and beyond it, okay? Uh, effectively, it's almost like a different profession and different expertise. And then when you, you want to take the company public, you have management team and, and CEOs that are public companies material, quote unquote, uh, and you have those who are not. But everyone, every founder or CEO is at, this, at the end of the day also a shareholder. So that also serves her or his best as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. what would you say your superpower is? I don't think that I have any superpower. Uh, I enjoy listening to people. I enjoy sharing thoughts with people. Uh, it's a tough question. It's also like almost like job interview question. Uh, I'm very analytical. Sometimes it's helpful. Sometimes it's not helpful. Uh, but that's me uh, for good and bad. Does that mean this is also your kryptonite, your weakness? It might be. I mean, sometimes it's better to be maybe slightly a bit more emotional and impulsive, but I'm very kind of analytical for me. I'm always cold-minded, kind of. I'm not taking things personally. I'm like, it has its pros and cons, I guess. Would you call it the ability, like stability? Meaning that the, the diversity is not the pressure points, but you have like the logical way you're the go-to guy in any pressure point or problem. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I have the tendency of looking at things in a broader view, okay? And again, it's not just, it does not necessarily mean that this is the right approach, but that also provides provide a different color to how you want to look at things. Uh, that typically, for many cases, there's no one answer. 
But the whole idea is to initiate a good dialogue and discussion. It's great to agree. It's even better to disagree. But as long as they do it in a mutually respectful way, I mean, I think that this is, at the end of the day, our role. And that's what we're expected. So fiduciary, that's what we're expected to do as investors and shareholders and board members. And if people want to pitch you, how can they reach out? In any way. I mean, directly, email, like you guys have all my contact details. I'd be more than delighted for any inbound. I mean, uh, sure. Know. So we'll be sure to share those in the show notes. Great. Yuri, thank you very much for doing this. We wish you the best of luck. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. That's all for today's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please consider subscribing to our podcast so you never miss an episode. Also, if you have a moment, we would really appreciate it if you could rate and review our podcast on the platform you're listening to. This will help others find our show. And as always, if you know anyone who you think would enjoy our podcast, please share it with them. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back as usual on the first of the month. Real life. Superpowers. Superpowers.